Scientists have identified the key ways in which we humans are destroying the ecosystems on which we depend. Is there climate change? Yeah. I mean, will it change back? Probably. That's what I think. How dare you? The British Conservation Alliance was launched by students in the United Kingdom to advocate for market-based environmental reforms. You should be empowered to deal with those problems. Lebanon, Poland, Spain, the US, the UK, Austria. It's just really cool seeing all these people gather to talk about these ideas when we weren't doing this a year ago, and we're doing it now. We can begin to defend the Earth against the disaster of global warming. The Green Market Podcast. Hello, I am Luke Warren, host of the Green Market Podcast, a show from the British Conservation Alliance in association with the Austrian Economic Centre and Cedargold that focuses on market environmentalism, ESG and impact investing, and the application of the Austrian School of Economics in tackling climate change and achieving our environmental ambitions. One of the more heated debates in climate policy focuses on the role of nuclear power in achieving net zero. However, nuclear energy is often viewed with suspicion, despite the fact it remains one of the largest sources of low carbon electricity, second only to hydropower. A 2020 poll in the UK highlighted that only 30% supported the statement, nuclear energy will help combat climate change in the UK. Today's episode will focus on the debate around nuclear energy and what role it has to play in reducing our carbon emissions, as well as why the debate against nuclear has gained such traction and yet is ultimately flawed. I am joined by Connor Tomlinson, Richard Benulli, and Jack Richardson. Connor Tomlinson is the policy director at the British Conservation Alliance and a contributor for Young Voices. His focus is on the way practical environmental policy proposals can be used to strengthen and repair international relations. Richard Benulli is the founder and CEO of Cedargold, which provides investment advisory services and research and consulting into ESG and sustainability. Jack Richardson is the policy coordinator of the Conservative Environment Network. Jack previously worked as a researcher in the House of Commons for George Eustace, Scott Mann and Alan Duncan, and has also worked at the Henry Jackson Society. Thank you all for joining me here today. Let's start the discussion on nuclear energy with a brief concept. Um, could we perhaps begin with you, Richard? Sure. Yeah, just to um, identify that there's essentially two types of, of nuclear energy. One is nuclear fission and one is nuclear fusion. Uh, fission is essentially the breaking apart of large atoms like uranium into smaller atoms generating energy. Uh, fusion is the opposite, uh, taking small atoms, putting them together and generating energy that way. Uh, fusion is also essentially the way the sun makes its energy. So th those are the two different types. Uh, to date, we basically only have nuclear fission. Uh, lots of research is being done on nuclear fusion around the world. Uh, this has been ongoing uh, for, for many decades. I actually myself worked on nuclear fusion development at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California back in the, in the mid-1980s and we were looking to try to get break-even by 1990. So that's still being worked on for, for break-even, meaning as much energy in as out. So the, uh, there's still research being done, but it's, it's almost there. And um, yeah, so that, that, those are the two types of energy, and the, there's many uh, aspects to nuclear that present a very favorable uh, market environmentalism 
consideration in terms of generating uh, electricity, energy, and meeting the needs that we have in a scalable way. And what are your thoughts, Connor? I'm reluctant to pick between which of them are more viable. I would prefer to defer to. So one of the guys on my staff is a nuclear engineer and whatnot. So he's he's sort of the guy that would, would be able to talk more on the tech side of it. For me, I'm more interested in what we can implement. And in terms of the geopolitics of it, um, it would be reliant on which one we chose would be reliant on where we would be able to get the specs from. So I know at the moment that we're, instead of buying some of the plans from South Korea, for example, um, or some of our American counterparts, we're trying to invest uh, in a joint project. I think it's 500 million that we're putting up front to work with uh, some of the Chinese engineers. So I, I think it's both, you've got to consider which route we go down is not only the viability of the technology, but also who we're co-developing it with. And in terms of the UK's route, We've got to co-develop it with other countries and uh, their private sector because of the massive amount of capital upfront that is is required to build any of these stations. Um, that's one of the focuses that we've been looking at from both the paper we put out just before December in terms of using nuclear as a uh, case study for how to use more liberal financial methods to recover from COVID in a in this green, clean capitalist way. And also one of the things I'm putting out in the ASI paper that I'm doing at the moment at Adam Smith Institute. I should not use abbreviations in a podcast where people may not be familiar. Smooth, Connor, hold on. Uh, one of the main things that we're looking at is how we can incentivize a more divested, less state-tied way of funding nuclear upfront. Because after the, all the plants are set up, they make their money back pretty quick and pretty reliably. But it's it's the sheer amount of money you got to put up, and uh, as the construction process is going by, attacking all these parts. Um, so. In terms of which one's more viable, you've got to have both the considerations of the geopolitics of it and the, the technologies at the same time, so it's a careful balance. So obviously a number of advocates of nuclear energy argue that it is vital in reducing carbon emissions and achieving net zero. Um, according to the Nuclear Energy Institute, 476.2 million metric tonnes of CO2 were not emitted in 2019 thanks to US nuclear power plants. Jack, what are your views on how compelling the argument is for nuclear energy in terms of the environmental case, especially in comparison to other energy sources? Um, well, I think uh, nuclear power is, is going to have a role to play in getting to net zero, obviously, because um, it sort of provides that that firm power that we don't necessarily get with renewables just yet because they, they still haven't overcome the intermittency issue. Um, I think uh, experts tend to be quite divided. So, for example, the Centre for Policy Studies had a, a paper recently and they said go all for a, a sort of new nuclear fleet um, because, we, like, uh, I think, yeah, just, we, we opened the first one here in Britain in 1956, the first civil nuclear power plant, and now we've only got eight and they're doing about 20% of our electricity supply, but they're all, all but one are due to shut um, before 2030. Um, so you've got the CPS saying that, and then you've got um, Energy Systems Catapult, um, who I think share the government's view of nuclear is going to be really important in having that firm power next to the sort of more flexible renewable power. Um, and it, it's, it's definitely the case that we're going to need nuclear because um, uh, if we're going to decarbonize all the other sectors that are really important, like uh, transport and heat is done for electrification and um, you need zero carbon nuclear electricity doing that for you. Um, but yeah, I'd say it's certainly got a role. And Richard, what, what are your views? Yeah, there's a lot of compelling aspects to it uh, from an environmental perspective. I mean, you mentioned the um, 
all of the carbon emissions that have not been put up into the atmosphere. Um, there's also um, savings on nitrogen oxides, sulfur dioxides that also have been not put up as a result of uh, nuclear fission plants. And um, the, the nuclear fusion will present even better um, advantages because that uh, has basically no carbon dioxide at, at all, but also uh, very, very little long-lived radioactive waste. So if we think of fission as having uh, uh, byproducts of 10,000-year half-lives in the nuclear fusion world, they, the first generation of reactions would only have uh, radioactivity of the order of 30 years. So, you know, after 30 years, metal is as radioactive as any other metal, which is very low. So, uh, and then future reactions after, after an initial um, development of that, which could be in five, ten years thereafter, after that point, could be no radioactive byproducts at all. So that, that's really great news. Um, plus, there's a very limited risk to proliferation on fusion, uh, no risk of meltdowns, uh, overall sustainability. Uh, the input is, is essentially water, uh, deuterium, tritium, isotopes of hydrogen initially. Um, so it's, it's very plentiful in terms of uh, low-cost inputs. So it presents a compelling argument uh, overall. And would you agree with that, Connor? Yeah, well, uh, as well, there's, there's a sort of social factor where uh, I know I might disagree with some of my colleagues here, even the ASI guys, um, but there is a, there's a strong narrative, and I suppose we'll be talking a little bit about uh, cultural impacts and whatnot when we talk about the the surrounding narratives around nuclear and some of the activist stuff that's going on. But there's a strong narrative, especially in Britain, about left behind communities and whatnot. And uh, with the Northern Mandate, for example, that the Tories had in 2019, there's definitely an appetite uh, with the recent government in order to level up left behind areas. And one of the great things about nuclear power is when you're, when you're drawing in all these new stations, they're not only, they've got a multi-decade life cycle uh, and they're a lot more dependable than fossil fuel stations, but they, they bring with it a lot of, not just the high paying jobs in the station itself, but in the surrounding area. So with you've got to revitalize in the area effect. So it does have cultural knock-ons. Um, as well as in terms of the, the environmental argument, it's as well, with the cultural thing, you've got to have a it's it's a hard sale to, to people in fossil fuel industries that you're going to be cutting their jobs. So one of the main ways you can do it is give them some sort of uh, viable replacement energy. And with renewables at the moment, the amount of energy they produce, uh, their storage capacity, their efficiency, it's subordinate to nuclear power. It doesn't mean that it won't be catching up with innovation in the future, but at least in the interim period where everyone's obsessing about going full, full renewable, you need something to bridge that gap. Um, we, we don't want to do fracking because that's that's got other sorts of implications and it's not uh, carbon neutral. Nuclear, in terms of the, its production, it's it's got no emissions other than when it's either decommissioned or constructed. So that's the most viable technology in that in that uh, that gap filling period. Um, and again, with, with renewables, you can't rely on that. I mean, just look at what happened with Germany. Germany scrapped all their nuclear plants, immediately tried to go full renewables, and then now what are they doing? They're either revitalizing their coal plants or they're buying all the oil from Russia. Which, I mean, what's the point of paying into NATO when you're buying all your oil from the from the main guy you're meant to be protecting yourself from, right? So it's it's pretty clear that not just by process of elimination. But also in terms of the the cultural and the uh, uh, statistical benefits factors, nuclear is just just the one to go with at this time. 
Thank you. Um, completely agreed. And there is a very compelling argument for nuclear energy. But as you said, a number of nations are unfortunately turning their back on it. Um, Germany being one of them, but another is um, Sweden. So members of the Swedish coalition government led by Sweden's Green Party are seeking to close their nuclear reactors and replace the energy supply with natural or renewable gases. In the United Kingdom as well, the Green Party are actively campaigning against nuclear power, most recently against Sizewell C. So, Jack, what are your thoughts on the left's anti-nuclear stance? Um, I don't like. I think a lot environmental campaigners on on both left and, and right. I think their main problem with nuclear tends to be on the cost, um, which, to be fair, it's it's, it's not. It, so Hinkley Point C, for example, it, it's costing like twenty three billion to build, um, and that's coming from the taxpayer. Um, and uh, that's going to take subsidies of about 30 billion over its lifetime. Um, obviously, if, if you're an environmentalist, you're sort of thinking, what could I do with that 30 billion? You could do a lot of energy efficiency, for example. Um, and the Hindley point C, that's, that's going to be about 3.2 gigawatts. So I think we're about to do four times that just with the CFD round that's coming up this year, where it's going to be lots and lots of cheap renewables coming on um, online. Um, and I think a lot of the private finance um, globally, not just in Britain, are heading for renewables. So in China, where they are really good at building nuclear power stations, often because they, they can do it in ways that we simply can't, like slave labor, basically, um, they're building nuclear power plants as fast as they possibly can, as, as fast as their supply chains will allow, whereas renewables are outpacing them still by two to one in China. Um, but just just going back to what Connor said earlier, I, like I think the the important thing to remember is that it's it's not about renewables versus nuclear. You sort of have to you have to make sure that you have both. And nuclear is certainly going to be very important for getting to net zero um, to bridge a sort of intermittency gap. But once you have renewable energy able through battery storage, for example, to overcome intermittency, they'll be able to provide a lot more flexibility on the grid. Which, um, for example the uh, National Infrastructure Commission, they, they warn against too much investment in nuclear um, in case you make your grid a bit too inflexible later on. Um, and another point really quickly as well, when because um, I, I definitely agree with Connor on the, the levelling up um, point, which is really important for the environmental case, because that's how you keep people on board with the net zero transition. Um, but you also do need to make sure that you keep bills down for people. I think that's that's a really critical point. So Hinkley's power, for example, is going to be is probably going to be like 106 pounds per kilowatt hour, whereas onshore and offshore wind, you can do that for less than 40 now, and it's still going down. Um, so I think the, the main point that nuclear needs to do, and it's, it's kind of done it size well already, where it's going to be about a third cheaper than Hinkley, is uh, get the get the costs down. And then I think you, you get people left and right on board. Um, another really quick point, sorry, just because you mentioned the, the left campaign against it is, um, I can't remember the ladies, and I think it's Zeon Lights, but she's gone from Extinction Rebellion over to being fully in favour of nuclear power because she realises that obviously it's zero carbon and in a country like Britain you can do it incredibly safely and, and not worry, mostly because we're not built on any fault lines for earthquakes or anything like that. It kind of uh, reminds me of a statement by um, David McKay in his book Sustainable Energy Without Hot Air. He said, I'm not trying to be pro-nuclear, I'm just pro-arithmetic. But there's certainly an emotional argument as well against nuclear energy. So Richard, I'd like to know your thoughts on the, the kind of emotional side of the argument against. Yeah, there's several aspects on emotional considerations. I mean, the first thing is uh, uh, at the highest level, it would seem, okay, we should all go to solar and wind, but 
you know, their scalability issues related to there. So if you have a typical nuclear facility, you might need uh, only a square kilometer or a square mile to operate, but wind farms are going to require a lot more land area, 360 times more land area to produce the same amount of electricity. And solar voltaic plants require 75 times more space. So it's a vast amount of land area that you need in, in both those. So there's a, certainly a scalability factor that needs to be understood. Um, and also the, the emotional aspects towards uh, radioactivity. So as I mentioned at the, at the outset, the, um, there's two types, fission and fusion. So the, the level of exposure to radiation uh, when properly done is on the fission is very small. Uh, there's actually uh, levels of radiation that are beneficial over and above the background level. So if you think of the background level, um, there's 620 millirems is the unit of radiation that is typical for over one year from both natural and man-made sources. Um, and so over and above that, you can go an additional 1,000 millirems. They're actually beneficial to health. It's a process called hormesis. Uh, so it actually benefits uh, your cells by reorienting themselves to be able to better withstand cancer. And, you know, but after that point, you, you get diminishing returns. So if it's too much radiation, you do get diminishing. But initially, you actually benefit from that. So the there's a lot of emotions wrapped around, you know, exposure to radiation, but there's a lack of understanding of uh, how much radiation we get, uh, you know, even from a, a cross-country trip uh, from the east coast of the United States to the west coast, you're getting about three to five millirems of radiation. So. You know how many trips you only have to do a hundred to get to the background level of of what you're getting on a yearly basis, a hundred trips per year. So um, just just to give some scale on on radiation, but yeah. So the uh, the emotional aspects uh, need to be understood within uh, reason and uh, compared to other forms of energy. Um, when it comes to Sizewell C, there's certainly a, a number of community groups that have also been galvanized into um, an anti-nuclear stance. Um, Connor, would you say there's also a slight maybe NIMBY approach to nuclear reactors as well? Yes, I would, yeah, I would say so, because you get, you get the same thing with wind. And I don't wrong, I'm, I'm very sympathetic about it. And you saw the same thing with the uh, Heathrow runway, which um, you, had, you had all the XR people fly their drones over, even though, not being funny, as soon as you've got, okay, how do I put this? This may be a tangential, but with the Heathrow runway thing, for example, you're always going to get an expansion of, of travel and interconnectivity. But one of the main ways that market environmentalists can look at something like that is you're hoping that um, innovation will transition away from combustion engines so you can still have the level of interconnectivity and travel, but without all the emissions, etc. cetera. Um, in terms of the not in my backyard thing, uh, <laughs> Yes, I, I think, again, people are vastly overestimating, as was already said, uh, the effects of like background radiation and that, because you've got you've got things in uh, Colorado has higher, uh, uh, Michael Schellenberger wrote about this quite a lot, which is quite a good bit of his book, uh, has higher levels of background radiation than some of the areas of leftover Chernobyl, but it's it's got none of the like high cancer rates and every, everything that's scaremongered. Um, and again, I think not in my backyard, I think stems from 
another cultural grand narrative. All of the anti-nuclear stuff, it's, I disagree with Jack, actually. I don't think the campaign is at all about the financials, because if that was the case, you'd have placards talking about the exact same thing that I've been writing on about how to liberalise funding mechanisms. Instead, it's calling back to the exact same sort of thing that you saw from 60s to the 80s comics. Kind of my fault, because I keep buying them. Sorry that the industry keeps going. But everyone thinks they're either going to turn into the Hulk or it's going to be like Dark Knight Rises, where you, some bloke can come along and one doctor can turn the underground nuclear reactor into a megaton bomb. Unfortunately, because this has been peddled for X amount of years, moving from Firestorm to Watchmen, it's it's really seeped in deep uh, propagandistically. Well, actually, you know what? I'm going to backtrack on propagandistic because I, I don't think that's the case. I think it's I think it's a lazy storytelling mechanism that it's then become part of the cultural zeitgeist. So everyone jumps on and makes presuppositions. But when you drill down past it, there's not much to be worried about. So so the not in my backyard effect is very much a, a cultural Cold War hangover, um, and also. A, a sort of surface level looking at oh it's good for everyone else but you're not actually you're you're so you're so worried about the potential effects you've heard infringing on your own lifestyle but you're not you're not you're not grappling with the issue enough to see what the actual detrimental effects will be which is thankfully next to none um sam who's on my team and i wrote about this in capex and a article so if you want if you want a bit of a closer articulation of uh, size well specifically go and have a look at that before I trip over my own time. Jack would you agree with that? I, know, I, th I think maybe some of the loudest um, uh, people who do, who do carry placards like yeah they, they they might sort of object to it on sort of environmental grounds but uh, like as in they think that it's going to be like Chernobyl all over again but I, I think that nimbyism sort of it, it's, it's not just with nuclear power and I know for instance that a lot of MPs are really really keen on nuclear so Trudy Harrison, um, who's up in Copeland, she was um, she wrote an essay for us recently um, for our Net Zero Northern Powerhouse collection, and um, she was highlighting all the benefits that the community love about having all that nuclear industry up that way because it was it's like twenty five thousand jobs for Hinkley, for example, um, which especially now coming out of our, our out of coronavirus um, when we're looking for economic stimulation and jobs. Um, and uh, yeah, especially with the low transition, um, low carbon transition. Sorry, like it's all about jobs. So I, I think like NIMBYism, it, it, it's not just about nuclear power. To be fair, it kind of happens no matter no matter what you're doing. The, you get NIMBYism with onshore wind turbines. Um, you'll get it with uh, waste incinerators. You, know, you get it with housing. Um, so I think you might might put too much emphasis on um, sort of anti-nuclear. Um, lobbying, which obviously does exist, but I don't think they're as bad as as, as bad of an effect that might might be perceived. Uh, I, I think, unfortunately, a number of environmental groups take advantage of that nimbyism in their anti-nuclear campaigns. But going into a more international perspective, um, how much of a priority do you think nuclear energy should be uh, given? by the UK government, given its current position as host of COP26 and president of the G7 this year. Uh, Richard, I'd love to know your thoughts. Um, not sure on the UK government, maybe Connor and Jack could be more knowledgeable on that. I'm based in Canada. Yeah. I'll hand over to Connor then. Yeah, sure. That's all right. I'll, I'll jump in and save. Um, I, I wrote about this God, it might have been one of the first things I did for BCA ages ago, and it, it turned out to be, not I don't want to say prophetic, but um, it's still something I think we should be carrying over, especially now that Liz Truss has seemingly got the appetite for, for doing some decent deals. Um, I think we should be directly tying in 
green goals to our, our trade deals, much like we've we're there's some there's an appetite among the Tories to do um, uh, the the human rights provisions in with the trade deals to have it so that courts can check that. I've been writing on that as well. Um, I think there should be a sort of sustainable building provisions within the trade deals that we're signing. And one of the things that we can do, uh, I, I did a piece on this, God, it must have been for like 1828 or something about a year ago. But uh, when we're dealing with South Korea or something, we can uh, bring their best and brightest to consult over on the plans and, and lower cost construction and things like that, because they've uh, uh, won their master that art. And in terms of the other geopolitical knock-on effect, I mean, one, if the UK is taking precedent on this for not only hosting COP26, but also making great advances in renewables and nuclear energy, that makes us look like an exemplar nation. It makes a, an example out of us for, for post-Brexit uh, negotiations. It gives us a better place on the world stage. And two, if we want to build, I know the appetite with the TPP, I bloody hate it, right? Because I think we're just going to trap ourselves into buying from oil monopolies and then we're going to have to foot the, foot the taxpayer bill when we hit with a lawsuit. But I won't go into that now because uh, I will be here forever. But if we want to if we want to get in that uh, sort of anti-reliance on China club of, of trade, and nuclear is one of the one of the utilities in that arsenal that we can we can use to shop around in the Asian Peninsula to to uh, uh, get we can we can take advantage of their innovations in in the sector to strengthen our relations there. And Jack, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I think uh, like I said earlier, I think. Um... Uh, obviously, nuclear has got a massive role without personal here in the UK, uh, low carbon transition, like it's part of the Prime Minister's 10 point plan and everything. Um, I think at, at COP26, um, well, to be fair, just economically, globally, um, renewables are just doing so much. They're, they're just like the way that everyone's investing, basically. Um, I did hear one really interesting thing, and I, I don't know actually how feasible this is because I haven't I haven't been able to look into it, um, not being a nuclear scientist. But Kirsty Gorgon, um, she was saying that because we've got globally, there's especially in China and India, they've been adding a lot of coal capacity onto their um, onto their grids, and those coal stations can apparently be turned into nuclear stations um, because they they use the same turbines basically. Um, so I, I do wonder if uh, that would be something to maybe push, but. I don't actually know how feasible it is, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but at COP26 and the G7, I think rather than pushing for a specific technology like nuclear, um, it's like it, we're probably better off just making sure that we're getting everyone on board with going net zero first and, um, and also starting to tackle the nature crisis because that hasn't really come to the same international prominence that um, uh, decarbonizing energy has. Certainly nuclear energy may well be vital in achieving net zero, but um, how can the industry and advocates of nuclear energy persuade the public, uh, a public that is very sceptical, that it is the right option, given the emotional nature of this debate? Um, so, Connor, I'd love to know your thoughts. Uh, right. I, I wonder how my tact is going to go over i probably am not the best person to advise the government on how to talk because i'm sort of the court jester in any organization i'm in if people haven't already told that by now and it's very clear that in terms of the covid press conferences for example they like trotting it out and having a slideshow and reading off the teleprompter and this that, and the other i think they can actually benefit a lot better from coinciding their a, a, a counter-cultural narrative by touting the facts that you can find in, in plenty of research papers, in books like Schellenberger's Apocalypse Never and whatnot, presenting that 
with a, with also a, a slightly different way of delivery because people as well people will switch off so you want to again you want to focus on a cultural ground narrative that's one of the things that exile does very well for example and the new anti-nuclear activists do very well they drum up a lot of emotions into the fight now that's that motivates people to action but the problem is it motivates them to ideological action and that which the collective ignores is often their undoing so you're just going to get a bunch of people running headlong into a brick wall if they keep acting like this what you instead want to do is you want to you want to package the facts and also add an optimistic not spin on it because there is there is a lot of potential there so the optimism is warranted but the way in which information is currently delivered it's so bland and irritating that even if it's something positive you're just going to get riled up and, and dis uh, uninvested anyway so like we spoke about earlier you want to talk about the level up of the left behind communities you want to talk about the job options you want to talk about the fact that even though they're not in, you can combat not in my backyardism by saying okay even if you're concerned about this being a, a, a blight on the skyline, whatever, not being funny, you've got the, the the reduced impacts of overall climate change divested across the country now as well. So it's not just centralised to your area, but you've got a ton of other benefits filtering out from everywhere else. Um, and as well, if you're going to, I'm not saying I'm the most effective communicator in the world, but you've got to take a leaf out of people's book where if you've you've got to liken the uh, the anti-nuclear activists to being the anti-rational we're all going to turn into comic book supervillains if we rely on this technology type thing you've you've got to hit them on that because they're doing it so you've got to, you've got to return fire and engage in the culture wars currently one of the main things the conservative government have not done one of the main things a lot of people on the market environmentalist side haven't done is not throw a bit of spice in there but engage engage on the cultural level we're we're happy to spit facts all live, all the live long day but we need to actually we need to attach it to a grand narrative of, of optimism whilst also stand, staying grounded in objective reality. Richard, would you agree with that? Yeah, those are great points. And all of the, um, the advantages need to be emphasized in terms of sustainability, no CO2, no long-lived radioactive waste, uh, limited risk of proliferation, no risk of meltdown, uh, emphasizing also on the cost and, and also uh, assurances to the public that there'll be large uh, duplicating and multiple layers of safety and security in place. Um, and then also combining the, the nuclear solution with, with all of the other uh, wind power, solar power that appeal uh, to, to uh, segments of the population which may not be favorable to nuclear. So there's, there's a lot of work now being done innovation-wise with, with looking at uh, thorium uh, type of reactors that uh, work together with solar and wind in the sense that uh, you, you store the electricity uh, within the, these type of uh, molten salt uh, caves during days when the grid is, is well supplied you know, by, by wind and solar. And then that, that uh, energy is then released if, if solar and wind power are low due to weather conditions, for example. So, so some interesting developments happening uh, that can actually go together with the traditionally viewed um, you know, renewable type of energy like solar and wind. And Jack, would you agree that um, mixing optimism with the emotional argument with pure facts and figures is the best way to counter the anti-nuclear um, I, I, I think that well, first of all, you need to persuade the government because nuclear power is contingent on it proving value for money, like I said earlier. But um, I think the way to win the argument for nuclear is first um, not to make it about nuclear versus renewables. Like nuclear isn't the only 
only ingredient that we're going to need to get to net zero. It's, it's very much going to be playing a supporting role, um, backing up renewables, which will probably make up the vast majority of, of our um, electricity capacity. Um, and then I think rather than like, I'm a, I'm a bit more averted to getting bogged down in, in culture wars exactly because I feel, I feel like it, they kind of just push people apart and it will just become even more emotional. So I think what, they, what the government and what companies need to do is bring down the costs like they've done with, with Sizewell C and bring them down a bit more um, and get them more competitive. And then they just need to provide the very solid business cases like it's good firm power to back up renewables. Um, they bring jobs, especially when we need them more than ever now, and they can level up communities like Connor was saying. It's like a massive part of the government's um, agenda at the moment is levelling up all those, um, especially up in the north um, and the Midlands where I'm from. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's just it, it's just providing sound businesses, business case. I think like most people don't really mind that much about nuclear. Sure, if you ask them a question about it, they'll probably think of like, the Chernobyl TV series that just came on, or maybe that West Wing episode where the nuclear power station built, like blows up or something. But the rest of the time, what they care about more is that you're delivering cheap electricity that isn't going to drive up their, their bills too much. Um, so again, you just need to bring down the cost for nuclear. And, um, and I think most people will be on board with that. And there's not much opposition to the government building um, nuclear power stations or having it in its 10 point plan now, for example, like obviously you get the, the people who are in the industry who are debating about it like like you should um but it's, it's not like it's an, an election winning issue or anything um so i think just solid business case and political management um should be enough um i'd like to thank all of you for your time today nuclear energy is vital in meeting our energy demands while simultaneously reducing our emissions the greatest challenge will certainly be proving to a distrusting public its value and rebutting any claims by anti-nuclear groups. If you would like to learn more of the British Conservation Alliance's work, please follow us online at www.bca.eco or on Twitter at the handle at BCA underscore eco. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Green Market. Subscribe to our channels wherever you're listening to us to make sure you see every time we post a new episode.